All right, today, if we were following the church calendar, today would be the 31st Sunday in ordinary time. Does anyone know what ordinary time means, what it stands for, why it's called ordinary time for those who follow the historical church calendar? Does anybody know why it's called ordinary time? Anybody? All right, someone knows. Okay, the ordinary and ordinary time does not refer to a season of dull routine, but rather the listing of sequential numbers. That's basically what it means. What is meant by the second, uh, what, that is what is meant by the second Sunday in ordinary time, the third Sunday in ordinary time, etc. Interesting, just if, if, you don't know this. There's no first Sunday in ordinary time because it is replaced by the feast of the baptism of the Lord. Rather than making a statement about degrees of importance, the term of ordinary time refers to the order of Sundays in the church year that does not fall into the major liturgical seasons of Advent, Christmas, Lent, or Easter. So any time that's not a part of those liturgical seasons are referred to as ordinary time and they go in sequential order. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, the seasons of ordinary time consist of 33 or 34 weeks and is divided into two parts. All right. Does that make sense? Um, so typically ordinary time begins on the Monday following the Sunday after January the 6th and continues until the beginning of Lent. It begins again on the Monday after Pentecost Sunday and ends on the Saturday before the first Sunday of Advent. So ordinary time is fast approaching its end, all right? But ordinary time. Now, just because it's referred to ordinary time, what typically is kind of the idea is because it's just ordinary time that follows sequential order that is just one day after another day after another day, which we can all kind of understand. There's a large portion of our life that we would just classify as ordinary time, right? Ordinary time. And it's that ordinary days of our life that really, if you think about it, that's where kind of spiritual growth needs to occur, right? Because we always have those, we have sometimes of great joy, sometimes we have times of great, Sorrow, sometimes we have times where something wonderful happens. Sometimes we have times where great tragedy occurs. Those are the big ups and downs in life, right? The big ups and downs. And sometimes, from a spiritual perspective, it's what we do in the middle of that. That ordinary time where, in a sense, we are preparing ourselves for what? The ups and the downs, Right? It's that ordinary Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And in fact, if you think about it, we, we do, we can understand this. If we don't understand it from a spiritual standpoint, you should be able to understand it maybe in a, a sports related perspective, right? The game is the exciting part, right? The people, the attention. But what really counts is what you're doing. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Maybe some people see what you're doing. Maybe people, many people don't, right? Uh, sometimes those who tend to excel, they show up at the gym, you know, five in the morning 
to maybe shoot free throws or to, or to work on their shot if they're playing basketball or they're, they're doing, and nobody sees that. Sometimes it's not part of what? It's not even part of the school program. They're going above and beyond and they're going above and beyond to be prepared for what? Those big moments, right? Well, spiritually, the same thing. It's what we do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, when before something big happens, before a a big struggle or a big temptation or a big failure or whatever, because that's going to be the thing that what? That somehow sustains us or gives us something to fall back on. It's all that building of it, right? In fact, as one source refers to this, it's easy to mistake to mistakenly think the liturgical year is about sanctifying time. Now, I do believe it is about sanctifying time. I do believe it sets time apart, and you make all of time about what? The things of God. The liturgical, uh, the liturgy of the hours attempts to do this, and the liturgical calendar attempts to do this. It makes every month, every season about God. So it does sanctify it in that sense. It sets it apart. That's all it means to sanctify, right? You're setting apart, trying to remind yourself that every month, every season is about whom? God. So I do believe it's about that. But they wanted to emphasize this. The truth, however, is that the liturgical year is about growing in relationship with Christ. The richness of ordinary time is found in the opportunity to know Christ more intimately. Are you ready for this? In the everyday realities of life. In the everyday realities of life. That's where, that's where spiritual growth occurs, right? In the everyday realities. Monday, and, and sometimes things, sometimes when we find ourselves in that path, we can kind of find ourselves in a spiritual, right? We may not even be use, we may not even be using those opportunities, right? Sometimes we just get complacent and apathetic. They're trying to remind us that it's ordinary time and those everyday realities of life where we have an opportunity to grow spiritually. Well, because it's the 31st Sunday in ordinary time, meaning what? It's almost over, right? There's like 33 to 34 weeks in ordinary time. It's about to end, and then what begins? Advent, which is then, from a liturgical standpoint, Happy New Year, because it begins a new church year, right? So that's a big deal, because Advent then leads to Christmas. Christmas leads to Epiphany. That's a big season liturgically, right? Like if you, if you go to a liturgical church, there's going to be extra services. You're going to have a midnight mass. Like it's a big deal. So right now this is like wrapping up ordinary time. So because it's ordinary time, I'm not saying this is the reason why these readings appear, but it's fascinating because this last week for the, for the uh, lectionary leading up to today was all about something very ordinary, very ordinary, It was about Jesus coming to dinner. Jesus went to eat at someone's house. And then there's this long conversation that happens while he's at that dinner. And, well, it's a very ordinary thing to go to dinner. It's a very ordinary thing to have a conversation at dinner. The thing is, it's not very ordinary and what to do with this text because I've been working on it all week. I think I've spent like three hours now in podcasting and I still don't know what to do with it. But guess what? You know what that means then. You have the unfortunate reality of, well, if he doesn't know what to do with it, guess what? We're going to have to listen to him talk about it 
again because, well, that's, that's what I do. I, because I would rather, I always prefer to come here dealing with what I'm thinking about than coming here just putting on a performance to give you what, well, I, I want to deal with the text. So guess what? We're going to go to Luke 14 and that's where we're going to be for a good portion of this morning is in Luke chapter 14. And I don't have any good answers for you, but we're going to try our best to figure it out. All right. So Luke chapter 14. Now what's fascinating, we're going to be in Luke 14, 1 through 11, if you want to write down the text. All right. Luke 14, 1 through 11 was part of the lectionary for this week. Now I did not realize it. I did not realize this. But as I've been working on Luke 14, Luke 14, Luke 14, this morning, I I, I listened to a lot of different things dealing with the the lectionary and the liturgical year. I heard the gospel reading for today, and I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Because the gospel reading today is Matthew 23. Now, you may not know the connection between Luke 14 and Matthew 23, I don't, I don't, I'm not saying those who put together the lectionary, even they would draw the correlation, but I was like, you got to be kidding me. This may be my answer. All right. But are you ready? Let's go to Luke 14. We're just going to do a lot of reading here. And then we're going to just do a lot of talk about hermeneutics. And we're going to try to figure this out. You ready? Luke chapter 14. Tell me amen when you're there. You may want to mark, mark, uh, Matthew 23. If I said Mark 23, I meant Matthew, Matthew 23. Right Here we go. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. And it came to pass, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. All right? Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time here right now on this. I've spent like three hours in podcast, and I got all... Well, I, I want to stop right here and start preaching. We're just going to read. I know it's hard for me to do that but I'm going to try. All right, so let's just read that again. And it came to pass as he went into the house of of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day that they watched him. So he he comes to eat, right? They're going to have a meal together. Everybody got that? All right. And behold, there was a certain man before him which had the dropsy. And Jesus answered, I mean, that's kind of an interesting name for a, a disease. I talked about all the medical Uh, realities of that disease uh, this week, but right now, I won't do that right now. And Jesus answering, spake unto the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath day? And they held their peace. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And answered them saying, which of you shall have an ass or an ox fall into a pit and will not straightway pull out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him again to these things. Very one-sided kind of conversation, isn't it? But okay, there's a conversation going on there. Verse 7. And he put forth a parable to those which were bidden when he marked how they chose out the chief room, saying unto them. So he goes from kind of asking some questions, right? And he heals, asks some questions, no one speaks. Then he looks around, then he starts telling a parable. It's weird that it's called a parable because it seems very direct, but he says, when thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, please note a wedding, which is interesting, he refers to it as a wedding. He could have just said, when you're called to a mill, because they're at a mill, they're not at a wedding. So why does he do that? I've got all kinds of theological questions here. It says, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man that thou be uh, bidden, uh, uh, 
lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. And he that bade thee and him come and say to thee, give this man place. And thou begin, begin with, begin with shame to take the lowest room. But when thou art bidden, go and sit down in the lowest room, that when, when he that bade thee cometh, he may say unto thee, friend, go up higher, and then, sh- then shall thou have worship in the presence of them that sit at meat with thee. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So we can already break down a simple, this is one of those things I love, this outlines itself very simple. Luke 14, 1 through 6, it's about, a healing and a Sabbath, right? That's very simple. Everybody see that? And then verses uh, 7 through 11 is about what? Where to sit? Where to sit? Seems pretty simple, right? Verses 1 through 6 is about what? Healing and the Sabbath. 7 through 11 is about where to sit? Seems pretty simple. Yes? Does anyone else say anything? No, so clearly it's kind of a one-sided conversation, though, isn't it, right? Okay, now starting in verse uh, 12, then said he also to him that bade him, Jesus is continuing to speak, is he not? When thou makest a dinner or a supper, call not thy friends, nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again and recompense be made thee. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and thou shalt be blessed for they cannot recompense thee for thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. All right. Now verses 12 through 15, I'll read 15. And when one of them that sat at the meat with him heard these things, he said unto him, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Very interesting phrase. So, verses 1 through 6 is about what? Verses 1 through 6 is about what? Healing and the Sabbath. 7 through 11 is about where to sit. Verses 8 through 15, or I'm sorry, 12 through 15 is about what? Who to invite? Who to invite? Okay, so far so good. Then, starting in verse 16, then said he unto him. Now, he, he's referring to the person who just spoke in 15, it seems, does it not? So now Jesus is interacting. But he, he just starts interacting by now doing this. A certain man made a great supper and bade many. Now, now he's, he's not talking about a wedding. Now he's talking about a supper, right? Which kind of fits the overall theme. And sit his servant at supper time to say to them that were bidden, come, for all things are now ready. And they all with one consent began to make excuse. The first said unto him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must needs go and see it. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to prove them. I pray thee, have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and showed his Lord these things. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in hither the poor and the maimed and the halt and the blind. And the servant said, Lord, it is done as thou commanded, and yet there is room. 
And the Lord said unto the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say unto you that none of these men which were bidden shall taste of my supper. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. So in verse 25, he obviously has left the dinner. He's left the meal in 25, and a bunch of people has followed after him. So the mill really ends where? Somewhere between 24 and 25, right? After he's done talking. There's no other words response. The people are not saying much, are they? They're kind of quiet. Now, what do we do with this last section? What do you want to call this last section? Do we connect it to who to invite? Kind of still connected to an invitation, right? Or maybe... How to respond to an invitation. Do we call this how to respond to an invitation? What do you want? What do y'all want to do with it? I I love giving you, I gave you the first three. So, I mean, I I did most of the outlining for you. What do you want to do with this part? Yes, it, it seems that way, right? So there seems to be somewhat of a connection, is it? Yeah, so I'm going to say, I'm just going to say 12, we're, let's go from 12 to 24 is about who to invite. We're just going to call it who to invite, right? Maybe we'll just go with that. We may, we may want to break it down more. I, I am thinking, well, I won't, I won't give away too much what I'm thinking here because there's a lot going on here. Now, when I started working on this this week, because I just happened... The lectionary just happened to be sitting up in the studio and I just happened to open it up and go, oh, what, what's, what week are we on in the, in the lectionary? And I looked and I saw Luke 14 and I always love, I love that because it's a challenge to me, right? I love to just see a text and then my job is to figure out what to do with the text, right? I love that challenge. And so I thought, oh, this will be simple. And now here we are multiple hours later and it's not been simple because I, I still don't have this figured out. So when we look at this text, what, in your mind, I'll just ask you, and, and there's no wrong answer here. I mean, I may tell you you're wrong, but there's no wrong answer. What, and, and all of this, and all of these 24 verses, what jumps out at you? What, like, does, does a certain element thing jump out at you? Does a certain concept jump out at you? What, what jumps off the page at you in those 24 verses that we've now kind of read through and me forcing myself not to start preaching? What jumped out at you? What did you notice out of those 24 verses? Okay. Okay. The silence. All right. That may, that may be uh, something that jumps out. Anything else? What jumps out at anybody else? Is this, is this a chapter? Let's just be honest. Is this a chapter you would just kind of skip and move on? Or is this a chapter that absolutely grabs your attention and go, man, I got to figure this out. Now, for me, it immediately, like, I got to figure this out. And I've been working on it now for, I don't even know. I've got pages and pages and pages and pages and pages and pages and pages of notes that I've been working on all week. And I'm still as baffled and confused by this thing as I was when I started. Now, you may not feel like there's anything to be confused by. What do you think I'm confused by? Okay, that definitely is in the text. There's no question that there's the invitation and then there's the refusal for some people to come. 
What do you think I, I what do you think my issue has been with the text? All right, let's try it this way. I'll just keep asking the question in different ways until we can find a way. What would you do with this text? If you're leading family devotions, if you're if you had a brand new friend who's a Christian who said, hey, I was reading Luke 14. Can you help me with it? What would you do with it? What would you think the main lesson is in Luke 14? Okay. All right, so Mr. Goodlett would go the uh, hardcore independent fundamental Baptist way, right? Evangelism. He goes with, a, maybe this is a lesson on evangelism. I could see, I could definitely possibly go with that. Yeah, oh, definitely it's how it's typically used, absolutely. All right, so the evangelism, this tells us about our responsibility to, to invite people, right? And keep inviting people. And not just invite the, the desirable, invite the undesirable. Okay, I think I can, I can definitely see that there's a lesson there. What else? Anything else jump out at you? Would you just make it all about Evangelism? That, that silence tells me that there's obviously, I don't, you're, you're either don't know what you would do with it or you're, you're trying to figure out what I, my problem with it is. All right, so let's go through this. Let's go to verse one. Came to pass, he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees, Right? All right, the Pharisees, to me, is the central group in this entire story, right? This entire story, Jesus is going after the Pharisees to me, right? Who is he eating with? The Pharisees, and most likely the Pharisee. In fact, we have, a, we have, we have kind of an idea of what's going on because... Uh, uh, who did they invite? When most likely more Pharisees and lawyers, right? Most likely that's who has, has been there at this table would be the Pharisees. Now, there may have been other people. Now, just note in this time, um, a meal like this, if someone supposedly popular or, or well-known was invited to a meal, it almost became a spectator sport. People would come and watch the meal. They would just stand like back against the wall while everybody ate, and they would just go, ooh. Because conversation was a, like a cool thing. I know we're not down with that so much, right? Because people get together and, and if they have a meal, what do we talk about? I don't know, the most mundane, mind-numbing things on the history of humankind, right? Things that makes me want to make, take my head and go slam it into a wall, right? Because it's like, oh, that was three hours of my life I'll never get back, right? Because usually it's just very mundane work, grandkids, the weather, I don't know, like stuff. But then, a lot of times the conversation's turned into, I mean, something's going on here, right? Uh, and so people would come and be like, ooh, ooh, like watching tennis. Ooh, ooh, right? What's going to say next, okay? But, so, there probably was other people witnessing this, probably, right? But most likely, if the Fer- chief Pharisee there, there were other Pharisees there present. So the Pharisees, to me, are, they, are kind of, at least for me, interpretively speaking, everything being said has some direct correlation to the Pharisees. Do, do you think that's fair? Do, do you yeah, yeah, think that's fair? Because Jesus has, if you don't know this, 
Uh, there are a few instances where Jesus ate with the Pharisees. He does so in Luke 7. And ju- I'm just going with the, the Gospel of Luke. Luke 7, he's invited to eat in the house of a, Fer- a Pharisee named Simon. And during that time, a woman washes his feet, right? Remember that whole, everybody knows that story? Okay, all right. Then in Luke 11, 37 through 54, he's invited by a Pharisee to eat with him. And while they're dining, Jesus seems to criticize the Pharisees for their hypocrisy. And then we have them meeting, eating again in Luke 14. Now, there's a lot of questions I have. On one hand, we could say, now listen, is this about the Pharisees? Or is this about Jesus eating with the Pharisees? Those are two different ways to approach the text. If I approach the text that it's about Jesus eating with the Pharisee, then we could talk about our responsibility to eat even with people that we deem to be our enemy. Because to eat in that culture with people was a big, big, big deal. Right, a big deal. I can go through, I've got them all listed here. Uh, in biblical times, to share a meal with someone showed fellowship and communion, hospitality and generosity. It was a symbolism of acceptance and friendship. It was uh, about covenant and bonding. It had religious and spiritual significance. I could go through all of these and I got a paragraph for each one. This was a big deal to eat with someone. So on one hand, you're like, why would Jesus eat with these people? Because we know they don't like him. They hate him. In fact, look at Luke 14 and look carefully in the text and see if you get kind of a very interesting phrase and how they are approaching him as they're eating. They watched him. Now, I cannot be dogmatic, but them watching him seems to imply to me that they're almost looking for him to do something. Like he's going to eat with people that are like, mess up, mess up, mess up. And Jesus seems not to wait for them. He seems to offer a preemptive strike, right? He's like, I'm not going to wait for you. I'm just going in. Now, again, so do we turn this into a lesson? What, like if we turn this into a lesson about us, is, is, is this a lesson about you and me and how we are to treat our enemies? Well, on one hand, we can say, you could look at, see, he showed love. He showed acceptance. And he went to eat with his enemies, and we should learn from that. But on the other hand, if we learn from that, then it would be us going to eat with our enemies to do what? To really have a confrontation. And we'd be like, well, no, 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 no. We don't want to do that because we would know, humanly speaking, that's not always the right thing to do. Humanly speaking, in many cases, that's the wrong approach, Right? But when you're God, you can do whatever you want, right? Okay, <laughs> But so I don't know if we can learn a lesson from that. People would just say, see, this is a beautiful picture that those of us who is our enemy, we are to still show love and we are still to engage in the beautiful you know, idea of having a fellowship meal with them. I don't know if I'm supposed to take that from this lesson. Right? He kind of goes after them, in my opinion. So I don't know if that's really what I'm supposed to take from it. Is this supposed to be a lesson and how you deal with your enemies? Well, we always know that whenever we take how Jesus dealt with his enemies and we try to implement that, it typically doesn't work so well. Part of the reason is he knows exactly what they're thinking and exactly what they're feeling, and we don't. He he knows exactly what they need to hear. We don't. So that's always dangerous when preachers are like, follow the example of Jesus when dealing with people. Yeah, there's, there's a difference. He's God and I'm not. So that, that's already a problem, right? 
That's, so I don't know. I, you see where I don't think that's necessarily the approach? So then is this about the Pharisees? I think maybe that, that to me fits a little bit more, right? Because Jesus is clearly addressing them. At least his story right at the beginning starts that way, right? So let's do this. Now here's the key. In the first story, in the first section of their meal, or we'll call this the first course. And the first course of the meal, Jesus immediately goes after healing on the Sabbath day. Right? Now, we know that the Pharisees had done what to the law? They added to it. Now, why did they add to the law? What was their motivation for adding to the law? Some of you may see what, the, what they did or added to the law. You may see that their motives were wrong. I will argue that their motives were right. I'm going to make a counter argument. My argument is this. They knew that God's law is what? Pretty serious, yes? And in many cases, it requires death for violating it. Whenever there are something you're trying to keep people from, we have a tendency to do what? Add rules to keep people from doing it. And let's be honest, if you're a parent, you probably did that. I don't want my kid to get here, so now I'm going to put rule, 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 rule to keep them from getting to the ultimate rule that I'm keeping them from breaking. And you would say that you're being a good parent, that you're looking out for them, you're being smart, and you would justify all of those additional rules. Yes? Christianity has been doing that for 2,000 years. Right? Hey, don't commit that sin. Therefore, don't do this, 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 get rid of this, get rid of that, don't do this, don't do this, get rid of that, cancel this, don't look at that, don't watch this, don't go here, don't go there. And in many cases, there is not a biblical rule anywhere near those rules. Right? Obviously, I'll just give a a quick example. The Bible condemns drunkenness. Everybody can say amen? Amen. Says wine is a... Fucker. It gives us a million warnings about alcohol. What can I not do? Add rules about not drinking since there's no biblical mandate for me to say you can't. Now, I can make arguments about the total, utter annihilation of human life that alcohol has led to, and I can make a logical argument for why I would stay away from it because I don't want to take the risk, right? Why drink something that could lead to an addiction when I probably got enough problems on my own? I don't need anything else, right? But I cannot say, it is a sin, which some churches would do. But when they do that, they're doing so to do what? To try to help people. So I think the Pharisees added rules, and I think that their motivation, at least in part, always remember, when it comes to our motivation, there's a fine line between our motivation being for good reasons and our motivations being for bad reasons, and that can fluctuate just like that. But they, So they had rules about what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. And basically anything that was referred to as work, can do. So like, it's weird. You could not move something with your hand but you can move it with your elbow or you can move it by going 
I know, it's ridiculous. Okay. Right. You can spit in the dirt because that can be considered plowing. Like just ridiculous concepts, right? Just ridiculous. Now, we laugh at it, but go look at Christianity. We made some pretty ridiculous rules, right? You can't listen to secular music, but I can watch all the secular television I want. Lord of the Rings. Oh. Harry Potter, evil. But both contain magic and wizards and what is going on? I don't understand. C.S. Lewis, the lion, witch, wardrobe, good. Anything else with a witch? Bad. I mean, come on. Christianity been doing it for a very long time. We got some whacked out rules, right? Remember, I, I learned it very early on. I had a Bruce Springsteen album that contained one cuss word. I had to burn the album. Then I go to my pastor's house in Tuscola. He's watching a movie that just dropped like 30 cuss words. And I'm like, you people are out of your ever-living mind. Christians make no sense to me. Like, I could not understand Christianity at that point. I'm like, my brain does not compute. My brain does not compute. You people are literally insane. Like, the same thing happened in my church in, in Nebraska. That you could not listen to contemporary Christian music because that was evil. Forget secular music. You couldn't even listen to contemporary Christian music. But they could watch the movie JFK. So then my friend calls me at work because he's all mad about it. He's like, hey, I'm going to go to your house and I'm going to watch JFK and I'm going to keep track of how many times it drops a certain cuss word that begins with the letter F, right? And so he's a, now he, I don't tell Stacy that he's in our house. So he's in our house. Stacy comes walking in the house and all of a sudden she's hearing beep, 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 beep. And she's like, what is happening in our house? And he's down there writing it down. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. Like he got up to like 150, 160. And so then we're, we, we, we confront the pastor. 160 uses of the word that begins with the letter F is, is fine. But Petra is sinful? You people are insane! Well, then that didn't go so well for me. But like, I don't understand it. So we can understand why rules are made. To try to help. But sometimes, have you ever figured this out? The more rules you make, the more inconsistent you become in trying to maintain them. It's hard to be consistent with rules, is it not? Because you make rule A, you don't even sometimes think how that connects to something else, right? It, it just becomes really confusing. So they have rules. Well, Jesus, obviously, he's got some kind of an issue here, does he not? I mean, go, go look, at, look at Luke 14. Who instigates the entire thing? Jesus looks over and there's a man with dropsy, right? This is a retention of fluid. It, made some, it, made, it can make people very, I, I went through all the different things that can lead to swelling. I went to all the different things that happens with this disease. But he looks over and he's like, is it lawful to heal this man? Now he's immediately going after them, right? He's immediately going after them. Is it lawful? And they do what? Why don't they answer? Because they feel a trap's coming. Remember, there seems to be some tension at this meal, right? They're saying, because they're watching. And Jesus is like, oh, you want to watch? Hey, 
come here, come here. There, maybe it was just someone, maybe, some, maybe the Pharisees invited the man. We don't know who invited him, but the man's there. And Jesus is like, come here. Hey, is it lawful to heal this guy? And they're like, oh, let's see. If we say yes, we could be violating our own rules. If we say no, well, the people could be mad at us. I plead the fifth. So then Jesus immediately heals him and then tells the guy, you can go, right? So obviously the guy's not part of the immediate dinner party because he's like, take off, right? And the guy takes off, right? He's healed. And then Jesus turns and what does he say to them? Look at the text. He says, so which one of you, if an animal falls into a pit, you wouldn't immediately reach out and pull him out. Why would they immediately reach out and grab an animal and pull it out of the pit? Because animal was worth money in that culture, right? In fact, he names two. A donkey and an ox. Both used for what? Plowing, pulling, carrying, right? Things that you need, like those are tools, right? Those are tools. They couldn't go down and get a tractor, right? These are tools. So they're like, so now what is he saying? If If that, you would pull them out. On the Sabbath. But he knows that they're somehow opposed to him doing what? Healing on the Sabbath. So immediately, then we, we could approach the story in what way? Is he going after them for what? That they care more about property than they do people. Or, see, this is where I get caught up. Is this, is, because that makes this very surface and very, uh, now the, the problem with the text is it doesn't interpret anything, right? It leaves us with nothing. You're like, Jesus, could you say something? Could you tell me what you're trying to get across? Because is he trying to simply show that the Pharisees are a bunch of selfish jerks who care more about property than they do people? Or is Jesus trying to articulate a bigger picture about the Sabbath. That the Sabbath was designed for communion with God. And that Jesus is ultimately the Sabbath. And how do we find rest in Jesus? By being healed by him of our sin. Is this a beautiful picture of that? Or is Jesus just trying to show you, guys, you got problems. Is this about the Pharisees or is this about Jesus doing a teaching on the Sabbath? I don't know. I don't think that this is about teaching us who to eat with. I don't think that that's the answer here. But it's, so I feel like it's about the Pharisees, but that just leaves it very kind of surface. Now, quickly move to the net. Course number two. Course number one, we got this situation here, right? Course number two. What's course number two? Where to sit? So when they're bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest room, lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him. So if Austin is invited to a wedding, right, and she walks in and she's looking around at the chairs, and let's say it's the wedding feast, right, and there's one right there next to the bride and groom, right? You, you want to sit really close to them, a seat of honor. And so she runs over there, sits down. Like, yeah, I'm right there next to the bride and groom. And then finally, someone comes in and is like, uh, you can't sit there. Someone more important than you sits here, like the mom of the bride or someone. And then she has to get up and 
where do I go? Just keep going. There's, there's a room a couple of miles back, and she's sitting in a you know, supply closet by herself, right? Kind of humiliated. And so Jesus is like, don't go to the place of honor. Go sit in the, the supply closet, and hopefully they'll be like, uh, Austin, please come up to the table. And then you're like, yeah, yeah, hey, everybody, look at me. So then the, the basic principle, he summarizes the principle there at the end of that little course. We're, we're calling it course number two of the mill. For whosoever exalteth himself should be abased, and he that humbleth himself should be exalted. So do we just make this a simple story about, hey, guys, don't always put yourself first. Let other people be first. If you go home today and there's only one piece of your favorite food left, you're like, please, family, go first. Is this just a basic lesson about always putting other people before you? Well, to me, this would still be a reference to whom? To the Pharisees. How do we know? Well, look at the text. Okay, He's looking at the people at the table. And how they sat down. And a lot of them obviously probably wanted to sit to this special guest, which is Jesus. And they probably come, I'm going to sit next to Jesus. And he probably noticed that some of the people who weren't the Pharisees probably were standing way back or sitting somewhere else. And he immediately, so this immediately, he seems to be going after him. I'm going to say he's going after the Pharisees. I don't think that this is so much a lesson telling you what to, you may be able to learn from it, but he seems to be going after the Pharisees. Now he's going after the Pharisees and he's seemingly saying that the, now in the first course, it seems that the Pharisees cared more about maybe things than they do people. They cared more about maybe rules than they did suffering. And in here, they seem to care more about their position and them being seen than they do about other people. They put themselves first. So I think in some cases, we have two stories that seem to fit together, do we not? Now, immediately after the second course, what does someone say? Well, I'm sorry. Uh, that's the third part, third course. He, uh, so he, nobody says anything after the second course. Okay, I'm sorry. After the second course, there's complete silence. There's complete silence, right? So then what does Jesus do to set up the third course? Then said he also to him that bade him. He immediately is talking to whom again? The Pharisee. What? Clearly the Pharisee, because who invited him? A chief Pharisee, right? And then what does he do in the third course? First course, we got the healing Sabbath. Second course is where do you sit? The third course, who do you invite? And what does he seem to indicate? Hey, when thou makest a dinner at supper, call not your friends, nor thy brethren, nor thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again and recompense me thee. He seems to go after the fact he's looking around and what does he seem to indicate? You've invited all your friends. Rich people. You've invited people that will ultimately, it will benefit what? Yourself. Because if you invite them, 
okay? We'll invite you, right? It's the whole reason, like, this, to, this is to me the very essence of gift giving, the problem with gift giving. Because as soon as someone gives you a gift, you are what? Now obligated to give them a gift of equal or greater value. Then why does everybody just get what they want and stop worrying about buying someone? The whole thing, whole thing of gift giving is so ridiculous, right? Because typically you give in order to get. And it's like, well, why don't I just spend the money on what I want and you spend the money on your want and then we're all good. But we all love that idea of a gift. But as soon as you get a gift, what do you immediately have to do? Oh, man, what am I going to get them? Right? The only time that doesn't play is when you're a kid at Christmas because you don't have to worry about getting your parents anything. You may make a little card and go, here you go, mommy. Thank you for the $7,000 you spent on me. Hopefully you like this stuff, right? But outside of that, you then quickly realize there's an obligation. Well, he's going after them for doing what? They're inviting so they can be repaid. Now, once again, this seems to go after the Pharisees, Right? Now, this seems to, these are three courses of the mill. And these three courses seem to be about the Pharisees. And so if we were to set, if we, I'm, I'm, no, I'm just, I still think maybe there's something deeper going on here. I just can't figure it out. But because on one hand, this seems so surface, right? It just seems like Jesus has got to be making a bigger point. I think he's making a bigger point. Because I think someone at this meal seems to understand it being making a, 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 a bigger point. But if we were to summarize the three sins of the Pharisees based off these three courses, what would it be? Number one, seemingly to care about maybe their own property more than they do people suffering. Right? Would that be a fair way to summarize the first course? Second course, They want a place of position and honor and recognition, even if it's at the expense of someone else, right? Even at the expense of someone else. You'll see this. Uh, now, thank goodness that movie theaters have now gone to you buy your, you know, your seat. But before that, it used to drive me crazy because I always would show up on, you know, either Thursday nights for the, like the 11 o'clock or midnight showing for a new movie. And there are always lots of people there. And you get there, you know, two hours before the movie to stand in line so you can get the center seat four rows up so that you get the best surround sound experience because why would you sit anywhere else, right? So, so you got to get there early to get that. Thank goodness now you can just pick your seat. And you'd be sitting there, sitting there, sitting there, and then just inevitably someone would just walk up and do what? Or my friend's up there and you're like, who do you think you are? Could someone tell me who you think you are? Now, I'm, an, I'm not known for not having a confrontation, so I would be like, back of the line! I don't care who you are! Because that just shows that you want the position, and all you care about, when people do that, who do they not care about? Anybody else? I say the same thing about people who, who leave a church. When they leave a church, do they care about anybody left behind? <laughs> they don't care. They don't care. They don't care if the church collapses. They don't care if your family. They don't care. Peace out. It's about me. They don't care about any. They don't care who else is impacted. It drives me crazy when people do that. It's because you would think that the basic thing that Christians should get maybe not be so selfish. But he's showing they're selfish, right? Hey, I see. And he's like, well, you do that, you're going to end up possibly humiliated. So in some ways you can say he's being nice to them. But it seems to be going after a a spiritual issue. 
And then the third one is, hey, you're, you're, you're doing things simply to get something, which seems to once again demonstrate that they care only about themselves. Now, what happens at the end of the third course? Someone immediately attaches all this to what? Well, no, no, right after the third course, he mentions bread, kingdom of God. He he addresses this to eternity. Now, it seems that within Judaism, there was a common kind of metaphor, illustration used about the eternal life being something like a wedding feast, a meal, which we see that in Revelation, right? The wedding wedding feast of the lamb. And then Jesus talks about a wedding feast and someone not with the right garments being thrown out into outer darkness, right? This metaphor shows up multiple times. I can't do all the cross-referencing right now, but there's this metaphor seems to show up. So immediately someone seems to pick up on all of this going, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Is this about something more? So is Jesus trying to demonstrate that these attitudes are, are sinful and it, ha- and it greatly would impact eternity. Now, immediately after this, he goes to this long, do we call this the fourth course? I don't know. We, do we call this still part of the third course? I don't, remember we kind of went back and forth on outline? But he, now he kind of brings a lot of the elements together here, right? Because in a roundabout way, he talks about inviting some people who seem to be the people who all they care about is themselves, because they all have excuses why they can't come, right? So then he talks about inviting whom? People who cannot bring recompense, that seems to fit. Clearly people who would not take a seat of honor, and clearly someone who is sick. All of this in this last part seems to fit everything that comes before it. In my estimation... So I think what Jesus may be trying... Now, I still think maybe he's trying to say something greater spiritually, but it seems to be the indication is this, that the Pharisees represent what's worse bad in all of us. And what is bad in all of us is we are a bunch of selfish jerks who only care about ourselves, and we will use our own religion for our own selfish means. Now, what's fascinating and we're out of time. I haven't put this all together. What's fascinating to me is, guess what the gospel reading is today for this Sunday in the liturgical calendar? Matthew 23. Does anybody know what Matthew 23 is about? This is about the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm not saying they set this up. I don't know. I mean, I, look, I've talked, about, I've talked about it a million times, how, I, how brilliant and amazing I think the lectionary is. Right? I've talked about that for, I, like, I think the lectionary is one of the most fascinating, amazing things in church history. How they pick these texts and how sometimes this text connects to this text. It's a fascinating thing. I don't know. Why, why the Protestant world loathes the, the lectionary, I don't know. I've talked about it before. Can you imagine what it would be like if, if it was real that in Christianity in 2023, every single church was reading the exact same scripture 
and the sermon was based on one of those scripture. I'm not, do you think that would fix all of our problems? No. But wouldn't it be kind of at least, a, at least an external look of unity? That whether you're at Victory Baptist Church or whether you're at a church in Abilene, you're hearing the exact same scripture read and a sermon is going to be based on one of those scriptures. Would that not be fascinating? I think it would be, but we don't have that. We don't have that because we're like, we're going to do our own individualistic thing because that's, I'm going to be guided by the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit told me to preach on this, which then would make your sermon infallible. Okay, we won't get into all of the nonsense that goes on, but it's Matthew 23. So let's go to Matthew 23. And I want you to consider Matthew 23 in light of those, we're going to call them three courses, right? We have the Sabbath, we have where to sit, and who to invite. And we didn't get a chance to take the last part apart a little bit more, but you can kind of see how that last part fits everything that comes before it. At least I I know I wasn't able to articulate it because, you know, I'm running out of time. But let's just, all I can do is read Matthew 23, and you just, if you see any kind of correlation to anything in Luke 14, just say something, okay? Here we go. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, all therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do, but do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. Another, that kind of fits, I'm, I'm already pointing it out, but that kind of fits a little bit like, hey, you can't be healed this person, but we can get our ox out of a pit, Right? For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. This seems to go after they make all of these rules. But all their works they do to be seen of men. They made broad their phylacteries and enlarged the borders of their garments. And they love thee. Uppermost rooms at feast and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Now immediately, does this not sound like what we just read in Luke 14? They want to be seen. It's about them. They want you to follow rules. They don't want to follow. They're looking for everything to benefit themselves. Chief seats. Are you seeing a correlation? I think, I think that's amazing, right? Uh, and they want to be called rabbi, but, he, but, uh, but, but be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Here's the key thing. Now, we don't have time to get into this. This is the key. And I'm going to, I think that verse, it's in Luke 14, basically the same thing, right? Here's the thing, spiritually speaking. You will not, this is just just true from a spiritual perspective. You want to eat bread in the kingdom? You're never going to eat bread in the kingdom until you're humbled and broken because you know your own sin. Right? The hardest thing to ever do is this. What, whose sin do we see first? Everybody else's. Were the Pharisees good at seeing everyone else's fault? Boom. They were masters at seeing everyone else's fault. You've got to see your own fault. And how do you see your own fault? By being awakened by the word of God to see you are a sinner. The Pharisees could never see their own failure. 
They saw everything that they did was justified and right. And guess what they used to justify their action? They use their religion to justify their action. And it's very easy for us as Christians to use scripture to justify our own wrong attitudes and motives. We have to be humbled. We have to be broken. Now the key is, once you're humbled and broken about your sin, you don't just stay there. You got to do something about it. You got to get up and move forward. You can't go back and fix it. Right? There's no point in going around telling everyone, you know what I did, you know what I did, you know what I did, you know what I did. What you need to do is just say, look, I was a sinner. I'm going to do what? I'm going to move forward. Does that not all sound very similar? And then he goes, verse 13, But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. They won't, they won't answer the invitation. Remember the invitation there at the end of, of Luke 14? But they won't let anybody else go. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. Hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a, uh, for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore you shall receive the greater uh, damnation. They, they found a way to get the widow's house to take from people, and they did so under the pretense of prayer and religiosity. Does that make sense? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you can pass sea and land to make one proselyte, and then uh, and when he is made, you made him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Now, I, do you feel like that a lot of that connects to Luke 14? Here's what I'm going to say. Luke 14, Jesus is going after the Pharisees. I would love to make some of that a beautiful picture of the Sabbath and a beautiful picture. He's going after the Pharisees. And by going after the Pharisees, guess who he's going after? Well, he's going after us. Because guess what all are we, uh, we are by nature? We're Pharisees. And what do we care most about? Ourselves. What do we want? recompense. We want people to give back. What do we want? Honor. We want position. What do we want? And in the minute we're called, if it's an inconvenience to us, what do we want? We're not going to go. We're going to make excuses. And we have a tendency that certain people, we don't think that they belong, and we'll kind of push them out. We'll kind of push them out. I'll never forget getting into a major argument church at Tuscola because I was under the idea because at that time in Abilene there was a a club that was very much part of the LGBTQ world and I was like well why don't we go invite those people to come to church maybe they're a transvestite maybe they're a cross-dresser maybe who cares and I was basically told you can't bring someone like that into the church and I was like What? Why not? Well, because it would make people uncomfortable. I'm like, well, then they can leave. I'll never forget in my church in Nebraska being called into the office saying, hey, there's a man here. He's a homosexual. We need to keep an eye out on him. Maybe you should keep an eye out on me. Maybe I should keep an eye out on you. Just because you don't like that sin, why are we treating that sin differently? And we use our religion to, put, to do those kinds of things. We're just like the Pharisees. 
We want some people in. We want some people out. We want, we want the recognition. We want, we're the Pharisees. So in Luke 14, Jesus came to dinner and really he exposed the Pharisees and in exposing the Pharisees, he exposed us. And what is the solution to being a Pharisee? Being humbled. How are we humbled? By not seeing Sarah's sin or Bobby's sin or Mr. Goodlett's sin or Robert's sin or Eli or Austin, but seeing our own sin. You seeing yours, I'm seeing mine. And then we're humbled by that. And when you're humbled by that, you realize you can't do much about it. You can only run to the one who can, Christ. And that's the invitation. It's the poor, the blind, the meek. And I come to Christ. Can I make recompense to Christ? No. People say, well, now that you come to Jesus, you now, you have to pay him back. I can't pay him back. Because whenever I pay him back with, guess what it is filled with? Sin. That's, that's being, we have to, we have to be a base. And the, the thing that breaks us, the thing that humbles us is our own realization of our own sin. You will never be broken until you see your own sin. But a lot of times we overlook our own sin to attack other people. Sometimes the people who are the most condemning and the most judgmental are the people who have the most sin to hide. Because they're overcompensating for their own sin. Amen or oh me? All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this afternoon. Lord, I don't think we did even a decent job on Luke 14, so forgive me for that. Uh, But Lord, I pray that just this very quick hour through it, Connecting it to Matthew 23, Lord, I pray that we would be broken and convicted by our own sin and that we would look for the Pharisee that's inside of all of us and realize that only being broken and humbled by your law will we ever be able to see and move forward spiritually. Help us in this ordinary time with a very ordinary meal, we'll learn some very extraordinary lessons. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. And God's people said...